World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. I just want to give you a quick heads up before today's episode. We've done something slightly different. Today's recording is taken from a live webinar we ran with the King's Brazil Institute. It's part of our World We Got This In Focus series, in which we run a series of webinars looking at various countries and regions and how they've been affected by COVID-19. In this first webinar, the conversation was chaired by Tom Phillips, Latin American correspondent of The Guardian. He was joined by an expert panel from the King's Brazil Institute, as well as the University of Oxford and University of Hull. You can find out more about these webinars and future episodes at www.kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. So here we go. How COVID-19 rocked Brazil, chaired by Tom Phillips. Welcome to this special world. Um, we've got this Brazilian Focus Live webinar, How COVID-19 Brazil. Um, apologies for my, um, for my, my uh, little cafezinho. Mm. But it's quite early here in Brazil still, um, where I am at the moment. Um, my name is Tom Phillips. I am the Guardian's Latin America correspondent um, in Rio uh, at the moment. And we have four amazing panelists with us today. Um, to talk about what I at least would say is probably one of the most uncertain moments in Brazil's recent history, um, certainly in the 20 years I've been coming here. Uh, on the brilliant panel we have today are Professor Anthony Pereira, the director of King's Brazil Institute, Dr. Uh, Dr. Maru Doctor, a reader in political economy at the University of Hull, um, Dr. Andres de Souza Santos, the director of the Brazilian Studies Programme at the Latin America Centre at Oxford University, and Dr. Vinicius de Carvalho, a senior lecturer in Brazilian Studies at King's College London. Um, thank you for joining us. This event is supported by the School of Global Affairs at KCL and the King's Brazil Institute, which is hosting us today. Uh, and it's a really particular big honour for me to be part of this since I'm a product of the rival Leeds University. Spanish and Portuguese department many moons ago. So it's nice to have been invited uh, along to this. Um, also, a very special thanks um, before we start to all the Brazil members who are joining us from campuses around the world, uh, Brazilian Students Associations, uh, which connects up Brazilian students studying abroad. It's really nice that so many of them can join us, I'm told, in, in places from Europe to Mexico and here in Brazil. So, bon, bon dia, and we'll see you também. So, this, today's format will work uh, as follows. We're going to hear from each of our five panellists for about five minutes on a topic relating to Brazil and the current crisis. And after those five-minute presentations, we'll move to an open panel in which we'll have some questions and discuss some of the points that have been raised. And finally, there'll be a live Q&A with you guys, the audience, uh, who are hopefully listening in. We've got two questions in the bag, and you'll be able to submit live questions um, during that Q&A. Uh, first up, then, is, uh, is Professor Anthony Pereira from, from King's Brazil Institute. Bom dia. Bom dia, Tom. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the politics of all this, because I think the political tensions have really uh, come out 
during this crisis during the last three months or so. And of course, the obvious thing to say is um, Brazil's become an epicenter of the spread of the coronavirus, you know, over a thousand deaths yesterday. Every state has had a death. Uh, Sao Paulo, Rio, Ceará, the, the worst hit. But this is a tragedy and it's continuing to increase. They, Brazil has not flattened the curve yet. The second thing that everyone's commenting on uh, is that the president has taken a very negationist position. It's very much aligned with Donald Trump in the United States. Um, he's dismissing the seriousness of the, of the coronavirus and he wants, he's against isolation and quarantine. He wants people to go back to work. Um, and that's caused some of these political tensions that I'd like to focus on. Uh, he lost two of his health ministers. Uh, he lost his justice minister last month. And this is, I think, changing both the nature of the government at the top uh, of the cabinet level, but also the nature of the support for it uh, at the base. So one of the things that we can say is happening, I think, and I think Vinicius might pick up on this, is that the president has doubled down on the military as a guarantor of the government. So he's, he's militarizing uh, the, the, the cabinet. Uh, we have an interim minister of health who's a who's a general, an active duty general, and he's bringing military people into the Ministry of Health. Uh, the president is negotiating with the so-called central, the center and center-right uh, agglomeration in the Congress, making deals. That's not the kind of politics he ran on in 2018, but he's doing it to shore up his base, which has been weakened by the departure of the justice ministers because Sergio Mora was associated with uh, the struggle against corruption. and. Um, he's, the federal pact has been confirmed. Um, the Supreme Court has ruled that despite what the president is saying, um, the state and local authorities have, uh, jurisdiction. They have authority to decide whether they should do lockdowns, when they can go out of lockdowns. And you've also got tensions between, uh, different branches of government. So there've been protests against the Supreme Court, for example. Um, and there's an ongoing tension between the executive branch and the Supreme Court. Um, when I say that support is shifting, overall, the popularity of the president has declined. Unlike most leaders in the world who have seen a boost in their popularity because of their measures against coronavirus, with uh, President Bolsonaro, which shrunk to about a third of the electorate that really seems to want his leadership. Um, but if you disaggregate public opinion, if you look at, for example, the recent Datafolia survey, you'll see that his support has actually crept up in the under two, two minimum wages sector. And that might be because there's a strong evangelical element in that part of the population, but also those people may have more difficulty uh, abiding by lockdown. They may need to get out to work. They may not have a salary coming in. And so they might support the president on that. In all other income segments, though, there's been a decline. So you're reaching a point now because of this tension. And of course, the, the justice minister is alleging that President Bolsonaro has tried to interfere in the autonomy of the federal police to protect his family members, especially his son, Flavio, um, from investigation. That led to the Supreme Court releasing a video of a cabinet meeting on the 22nd of April which has um, you know, generated furious controversy, furious commentary. I think for the base, the one third of the population that's the Bolsonaro base, 
it probably hasn't changed their mind about the president. They probably see him as saying, well, he's saying what I want him to say. He's anti-establishment. He's trying to shake things up. But for many other people, there's a sense that uh, maybe some of these impeachment bills that have been put into Congress should be looked at after the coronavirus is over. And there's speculation now of whether the president can reach the end of his mandate. Jose Murillo de Cavallo, uh, historian, gave a very interesting interview where he said a few days ago, it's harder and harder to see this president seeing out this presidency given the, the, the reaction of public opinion against this video, for example. And so uh, maybe, maybe one of the most revealing quotes of this whole thing is on the 17th of April, the vice president, General Hamilton Morau, said, uh, everything's under control, but we, we don't really know who. Is, a, is, 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 has got this situation under control, which I thought was maybe that encapsulates the nature of these tensions, these poli this political crisis, which accompanies the public health crisis and the economic crisis. So I, I'll leave it there. Thanks. On that reassuring, on that reassuring note, um, thank you, Professor uh, Anthony. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Maruk Doctor um, from the University of Hull. I think I think maybe you need to unmute your microphone. Oh, sorry. Hello. Um, uh, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, uh, my presentation will look at three issues. Uh, first, the response to the economic impacts of the uh, pandemic. Next, uh, a brief comment on the revival of state market debates. And finally, a brief post-pandemic economic outlook. Now, in mid-May, President Jair Bolsonaro said that lockdown was, and I quote him, the path to failure to breaking Brazil. At this point, there were about 10,000 deaths. On Facebook, he warned, again to quote, the so-called second wave is coming, recession. Today, Brazil has the second largest number of COVID-19 uh, infections, over 414,000. Uh, uh, over 25,000 deaths, on a path to 125,000 deaths by August, as for some calculations. But Bolsonaro remains more concerned with protecting wealth and jobs rather than the health of his population. He worries that a recession will kill his re-election hopes. Of course, <laughs> if he even gets there is another matter. Early economic impacts have created a very negative mood in markets. The Brazilian stock market has been the one to fall the most around the world, uh, falling more than 55%. The currency is down over 30%. Uh, foreign investment outflows are over 77 billion reais. A quarter of households are without income. Uh, industrial capacity utilization is less than 50% for most sectors. Uh, and uh, second quarter GDP contraction will be around even 12%. Uh, so, uh, in the meantime, Eco Economy Minister Paulo Guedes is sitting in his outdated ivory tower uh, and has been slow to grasp the scale of the crisis. Although the central bank president, uh, Roberto Campos Neto, has been quicker to react. In fact, he cut interest rates uh, in March already uh, down to 3%, which is a record low for Brazil. Soon, however, the Brazilians kicked 
started their economic stimulus packages, and today it is bigger as a share of GDP than the global average. Brazil, of course, has the institutions and mechanisms to quickly ramp up state intervention in the economy. A lot of practice in this over the decades. Uh, the government has uh, said it is pumped, uh, it's going to pump in some 345 billion reais. That's about 53 billion pounds, 65 billion dollars uh, into the economy. Some examples of measures, of course, payroll, cut, uh, ta uh, payroll tax cuts, public sector wage uh, uh, freezes, uh, also today an indication that companies won't have to pay July taxes, 151 billion package of emergency aid to the poorest, giving people 600 uh, reais a month for three months. How long this will continue is another question. Some 16 billion a program to support micro and small businesses. This is the Pronampi program. BNDS on standby with some 97 billion. Clearly the Brazilian government is willing to throw money at this crisis, but it is not willing to instruct people on how to contain the virus, or to support the appropriate health messaging that is really urgently needed. So the pandemic has brought uh, debates about the role of the state and the economy to the fore again. Will COVID-19 force a U-turn away from the government's fiscal austerity and pro-market reforms? Was ideology behind its rather slow reaction, especially in using the BNDS to put counter-cyclical stimulus in place as it did back in 2008? Uh, is, however, the uh, uh, fear of recession and political fallout going to see Bolsonaro pushing Geddes to abandon his sort of neoliberal path? Now, how are we going to know what to look for? I would suggest two areas of interest. The tug of war in BNDS will be one of them. Will BNDS continue to shrink its loan book and disbursements? Will it continue to sell off its shares? Another area to look at is as trade. While everyone is so preoccupied with the COVID-19, last week, Brazil formally requested to join the WTO government procurement agreement. Uh, so far, 48 countries have joined. Brazil as a public procurement market is worth some $157 billion a year. And this could be opened to foreign firms. It's done very quietly, no fanfare. Of course, this is going to be something to think about. So then it brings the other side of the question. Will the strains of the recovery jeopardize structural reforms and further liberalization? Will the growing prominence uh, of the military personnel in the government rebalance thinking towards more traditional developmentalist preferences? Now, if developmental states are characterized more by their attitude than the use of specific policy instruments, then Bolsonaro and Guedes uh, might be considered to be leading the end of developmentalism in Brazil. But given that the same cannot be said about the attitudes of Brazil's bureaucracy, nor its businesses, I think it might be too early to celebrate the death of developmental state in Brazil. So to conclude, uh, post-pandemic outlook, Brazil is headed for a massive contraction in GDP in 2020, maybe around 7% according some estimates. Uh, this is not unusual globally, uh, so Brazil would not be standing out in that respect, uh, but it expects a very quick rebound in 2021. There are many challenges ahead, all predating the pandemic, I should say, 
for example, increasing business confidence to invest, innovate, and increase productivity, increasing competitiveness, addressing issues of tax reform, infrastructure, and so on, increasing focus on poverty reduction, and even more importantly, perhaps deal with the growing inequalities as a result of this pandemic, and finally, uh, sensibly dealing with the issues of environment, climate change, and sustainable development. I'm happy to take questions on any of these issues, but I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, lots of questions there. I have many questions about that. Um, um, next up, we have Dr. Andresa Sosa Santos, who is the director of the Brazilian Studies Program at Oxford University. Thank you, and good, good morning, everyone, people in Brazil. Bom dia. And perhaps um, here uh, my talk break down a little bit this idea of a Brazilian response to nuance a little bit more and look at what is this complexity called Brazil. So uh, those listening to us now might know that Brazil is made of 27 states and 5,570 municipalities. And what we had in Brazil is that a lot of these municipalities, a lot of the mayors, they took measures, they took distancing measures before they had any cases confirmed. So when we think like, oh, Brazil response was really bad, like let's make some justice to what the mayors did, right? And uh, we know, and there are some papers on that already, that Brazil had imported cases and therefore the role of airports and large cities was very intense in the very beginning of the pandemic. And I quote here a paper by Darlan Cândido, who is talking exactly about that, how the virus starts spreading in Brazil and which cities were key for that. And it's mainly the major cities. Um, in the very beginning of the pandemic. But the, the response happened already in the smaller cities. And we have in states, for example, in Rio Grande do Sul, we had more than 90% of all mayors taking distancing measures and following the governors, following the leadership of governors on that. So here we have a second question. If these distancing measures happened so early on, why, was the result so bad? Why were they so unsuccessful? And here we have politics and economics playing a big role. We, um, as Anthony said in the very beginning, some of the responses to, to the pandemic by um, President Bolsonaro were that um, COVID-19 is a gripezinha, it's just a little flu, it's just a little cold. And so you have this politi politicization of the, the health crisis and lots of people who um, believe on Bolsonaro, who support Bolsonaro, then they deny the health crisis. And, and therefore you have distancing measures happening since the beginning of the pandemic, but very few people really following those measures. Not very few, but it's still not as many as should be for those measures should be very efficient. And you have an economic issue because obviously um, it's very different, the result of staying home for people who have a job, who, who can work from home, and for those um, that stay home means losing 100% of their income. And then the government needs to balance 
some of these these results so people who don't have a health insurance people who have more risk because of previous health conditions and people who are losing all their income how can we even some of these situations and what we saw is that to access the money that allow people to stay home they have to leave their homes so people had to leave home to to queue in the bank to then be able to access the money that allow them to stay home. And when leaving the home, this also, um, there are also very different implications because you have cities such as Brasilia that uh, had a reduction in the number of people using public transportation by 70%, but they only reduced the public transportation by 20%. Only people who had, uh, who were very old or had some um, health conditions, they stayed home, some of the drivers, but otherwise the transportation system remained fairly the same. But you have cities such as Manaus, Rio de Janeiro, um, Belo Horizonte, they really reduce the number of, of buses according to the demand. So you have less people circulating, but these people go in public transportation that are almost as fact. So some of these results that we see really on, on a macro scale of the city and, and then again affected by what's happening in national news are very complex. And if we go uh, another level down, we, on a neighborhood level, we have um, some community associations that were already fairly organized and could really react to the pandemic. And we have other ones that were not. And you don't organize grassroots associations from day to night, especially during health crisis. So again, the response was um, different there. Um, but since I got to grassroots association and I'm concerned about time, so I'm concluding, this leads us to talk briefly about the next elections in Brazil. So in October 2020, we are supposed to have municipal elections. And municipal elections in Brazil are very large. So when we talk about elections, we are talking about very large numbers. Um, last elections, we had more than 16,000 people um, fighting to become a mayor. And almost half a million candidates for local assemblies. And that means we had 2 million people working on the day of the election. And we had almost 150 million people voting. So those are the numbers of, of a very large elections. And if we think that the mayors we have now in power, one-fifth of them are older, um, they're older than 60 years old, and a lot of those mayors can run again for office. So how are those elections going to take place amid this health crisis? And um, just to finalize, we have um, around 3,000 municipalities with less than 20,000 inhabitants. And for those small towns, elections is, as we say in Brazil, really corpo a corpo. It's from household to household. So it's very difficult to, to have these elections um, with social distancing. Um, and, and there are many interests playing out in the background. You have uh, mayors who want to stay in power, you have, of course, the pandemic and, and the health situation to look after. You have um, the church perhaps not being as an important actor as it was in previous elections now that there is no agglomerations, there is no um, temples opening. 
and um, we have a difficulty perhaps for uh, a large renovation if you don't have um, new candidates with a very known name to then launch themselves might be more difficult but if we postpone these elections to 2022 or just to a very um, brief period of time is still uh, a big discussion going on in Brazil. Thank you very much. Um, super interesting. Yeah, I've heard lots of people talking about um, different mayors and governors and I've spoken to quite a few Brazilian governors over the past few weeks about this. It's a really interesting topic. Um, Hope we can dig into it more. Uh, last up, we have Dr. Vinicius de Carvalho, who is a senior lecturer in Brazilian studies at King's College London. Thank you. Um, bon dia. Good afternoon for everybody. Um, well, um, I will just pick up what uh, Andresa just said about this, let's say, this diverse picture of the, the situation in Brazil and have as focus basically the north part of Brazil. Two of the hotspots of the, the COVID crisis are the city of Belém and Manaus, the, both capitals of the north states of Brazil, Pará and, and Amazonas. Uh, and why that's important to mention here is because also that's the region that uh, we have um, the hugest part of the uh, indigenous populations in Brazil. Um, according to the Social, uh, Instituto Socioambiental, by today, we have 105 cases among indigenous people in Brazil with 44 deaths uh, of COVID there. Why that's relevant here? Um, well, indigenous communities in Brazil were historically more vulnerable, especially in times of epidemies. We must remember that um, in the process of, of colonization of Brazil, most of the indigenous people that had been um, uh, killed during this process were due to epidemics. Um, with illness brought from um, by the colonizers. Uh, what we're seeing today, it's again the repetition of this history uh, because most of this indigenous population, they are very dispersed among a huge area uh, of Brazil. Again, just to remember the Amazonian region, just the state of Amazonia, it's bigger than Germany and France together and probably some other European countries. So we have a very dispersed community, a very dispersed population. Um, with difficult access to healthcare, to, to medical supplies or support, uh, very difficult communication among this region because mainly they depend on river Rhine um, uh, transportation. Uh, so the, the spread of the epidemic among the indigenous populations, it's, uh, it's, a serious, um, it's a serious threat to the small people that are still living in, in the regions, uh, especially north of Brazil, as I said. And together with that, we should put uh, this, this north part of Brazil under another frame that's very important for us today. Uh, last year, we saw the, the crisis of the fires in the Amazonia and, and the risks that uh, the, the environment had in Brazil, uh, numbers that we haven't seen in the history before. Um, in a response for that, uh, the Conselho da Amazonia, Amazonian Council, was uh, given to the hands of the Vice President, uh, General Milton Mourão, who start this year exactly at the same time that uh, the, the, the issue with COVID, uh, the Operação Verde Brasil, Green Brazil uh, operation, to, to really tackle the, the, um, the lodgers and deforestation in the Amazonian region to prevent what happened last year. So at the same time, that is very important operation that to really help to prevent um, the, 
the, the deforestation of the Amazonia, it brings together the risk of more circulation of people in this region, and perhaps that facilitates also the circulation of the virus among uh, indigenous people, especially those that are not so uh, well connected with big cities. Or even if they are, the risk of somebody living in, uh, in an indigenous tribe today coming to Manaus or to Belém, um, the, the risk of getting infected is much higher due to the fact that those two cities are hotspots for for the, the, the coronavirus uh, nowadays. So I will leave right now and we can perhaps develop more this question and especially about this response to the, the question or the, the issue of the deforestation and also how we will be connecting these two things um, in the case of the Amazonian. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Benitez. Okay, um, well, so many questions. Um, maybe I could start with going back to the beginning with, with, um, with Professor Anthony. We are, I mean, you, you can, uh, some viewers can probably tell from the wrinkles on my forehead and my increasingly grey hair that, that there is so much news coming out of Brazil at the moment. It just feels like it doesn't stop, even before the, the pandemic. Um, and it feels to me now that we really are at a, a, a very unusual uh, juncture in Brazilian political history. Um, you know, I pick up my phone this morning and the news alert from Global says that last that last night the president's son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, was warning of a political rupture in Brazil. Um, we saw some of the big influences, on, online influences, linked to the president at their houses raided yesterday. On the other hand, we, we're dealing with a, a de devastating health situation. Um, and my sense from, from doing interviews with people here who've lost their relatives is that we don't really, we haven't really fully understood the depth of that crisis yet and how it is impacting different parts of Brazil. My question is, how... Um, I asked some of my Twitter followers last night when Brazil was facing such a moment in its history, and the responses I got were 1964, 1990, 1985, uh, after Tancredo's um, death, when Sahane wasn't sure for a few hours if he was going to be able to take over. Some said 2016. How do you feel about this moment that Brazil is going through, where on one hand you have a huge political crisis and on the other a huge public health? That's very interesting, Tom. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting to think of parallels. Um, I, I sort of accept the analysis that other people have made is that the presidents that Bolsonaro is most similar to are Jeanne Quadros, who resigned in 1961 and I think hoped to be swept back into power somehow, um, and, and Fernando Collor de Mello, uh, in, in the sense that, is that they both, uh, I think, wanted more power, had quite a confrontational relationship with Congress, and... Um, you know, were, were kind of instigating, if you like, a shock between the powers. And they, you know, they both lost the contest. I mean, Quadros resigned and couldn't, didn't come back, and Collor de Mello was impeached. Um, but the, if, you know, I spent last Saturday watching the video of the April 22nd cabinet meeting, and what struck me there is the prevalence within the cabinet, not just of Bolsonaro, but some of his ministers, of quite illiberal even in unconstitutional views of how the government should work, you know, saying that the Supreme, the members of the Supreme Court should go to jail, saying that the governor should be rounded up and should go to jail. Um, so quite a kind of um, voluntarist 
putschist kind of view of government. And I think that's what's getting a lot of people worried, is that when push comes to shove, one of Bolsonaro's cards, I think, is his popularity in the lower ranks of the, of the army, in the, in the military police, in the militias. And he talked in that cabinet meeting of how important it was to arm the population. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are hoping that whatever conflicts happen between the different powers, it, it doesn't come down to something like that. Uh, it doesn't come down to, uh, you know, power on the streets. So I, I think that analogy with with Quadros and Kolor works to some extent, but in in many ways, this does seem this does seem different. It does seem we are in uncharted waters in some ways. I think partly because of the ideological nature of the of the government, and it's a it's a kind of uh, illiberal populist nationalist ideology that Brazil hasn't really had before amongst a, in a governing group. And you and you don't then think it's just noise. I mean, you do think there is some chance that it does come down to power on the streets. Well, that's an interesting thing about the coronavirus. I mean, it's kind of inhibited people from protesting against the president. I mean, they, they've been doing panelazos from their flats, um, but they, you know, it's difficult for them to get onto the streets because of the quarantine and the the, the lockdowns that have been decreed in, in most places. Um, I think when when the virus has subsided and, and protesting on the streets is, is, is accepted again, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's still happening with a small group of Bolsonaristas, but if it, if it becomes something that the, the whole population feels comfortable doing, um, yes, I think as with the impeachment of, of Joma Rousseff in 2016, who can mobilize supporters, not just in, on social media, but on the streets, will be a factor. I'm not sure it'll be a decisive factor, but I think it'll be part of the, of the sort of political balance of power. And it, it's just not clear to me how much appetite there is in Congress, say, to pursue any of these impeachment bills. Um, it may be that people are exhausted and they feel that it's too much of a dispersal of energy and time to, to do that. And they just have to try to, you know, quarantine the president, if you like, or limit the president uh, from his, his the, the, the sort of worst angels of his nature. Um, so it, it, it's not clear, but I, I, I do think that that is a that is a card that Bolsonaro has that Dilma Rousseff, for example, n- never had. You know, when her popularity sank, no one was intimidated by followers who were armed who who thought, uh, you know, we might want to go out onto the streets to defend our president. That really wasn't a factor in anyone's calculation, and it could be if uh, both President Bolsonaro's mandate is threatened in some way, either through an impeachment or through some other act. Dr. Maruk, how does, do you think the economics feed into that and the political situation? And, and well, I mean, you spoke about the seven or whatever percent drop in GDP we're going to see this year. How, how is economics going to influence this? So uh, the heart of the debate seems to be, of course, uh, exactly around the economy and uh, Bolsonaro's desperation in a way to keep the economy going. And all the, uh, uh, the decisions made around uh, ignoring uh, the social distancing or advice relating to keeping uh, uh, service sectors closed, etc., really, it, the heart of the thing is not some sort of uh, specific uh, 
the denial of there being a problem at this point, because you can't, <laughs> 25,000 deaths and God knows how many, uh, uh, almost half a million uh, people infected, uh, is of course uh, keeping the economy running. And why? This is in the recent past, again, looking at Dilma Rousseff's situation, what ultimately killed her in terms of what led to her impeachment? It was precisely the fact of the steep, steep recession. And uh, while Brazilians will forgive perhaps many shenanigans, uh, as long as the economy is doing well, and by Brazilians here, I do mean especially those in better off uh, uh, conditions, <laughs> not the worse off, uh, they will tolerate a lot of, uh, let's say, political scandal, if you like. Uh, but when the economy is not doing well, then all hell will break loose. The other thing, however, to notice that by putting this constant pressure on the governors, he is trying already shifting blame. So when the pandemic fades and when uh, economic activity revives, and the rebound will be essentially quite quick, and he's going to be able to make hay out of that in 2021, uh, uh, he will also be able to remind his uh, followers, especially, but the electorate more generally, that look, we, now that we're being allowed to do things, we are doing so well. Obviously, that's not the reason they're going to do well. It's just because from lockdown to a, a reasonable pick up in activity, you're going to see growth. Uh, so um, I think uh, uh, we cannot dismiss the use they are making of uh, the economic issues uh, and it has really uh, created more of a problem than a help. They don't seem to understand that the help affects the economy too. Dr. Andresa, we have um, spoken and, and I have written and many of the journalists covering this story have written lots of very negative things over the last few weeks, as you, as you pointed out. Um, I've also heard some more positive stories, I think, along the lines of, of some of the things you were talking about, about regional leaders and mayors. I have um, heard, heard people praise Eduardo Leite down south. Um, I've heard people say some quite positive things about Flavio Gino. I've heard some people talk quite um, positively about Alexandre Khalil in Belo Horizonte. What, what for you are the stories that people should be hearing about where, where local leaders are responding well to this? Um, talk, talk to us a bit about that. Well, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I think this could be um, a good moment to reflect the role of mayors in Brazilian politics. Um, anyone used to Brazilian federal system, federalist system, and political discussion knows that often the mayors are viewed as sort of beggars. They always go to Brasilia, they say, well, compete is na mão, with a plate on their hands to get a coin, because they need a lot of resources from the federal government. And the creation of new municipalities is always seen as a burden to, to the national administration. But we need to see a nuance that view a little bit. So in Minas Gerais, for example, you have more than 800 municipalities. And in the state of the Amazonas, you have 62. 
And I mean, I'm citing these numbers by head. So any mistakes is, I'm not Googling any of this. So um, there's a massive difference. You have a large territory in the Amazonas estates with very few centers for administration and always everything very decentralized, not to mention that um, I see beds you only have in one house. So do, can we um, give a little bit more decentralization to some areas? Are municipalities only a burden? And these positive stories really help to understand uh, what is the role of, of mayors in, in a pandemic. It really shows. And in other situations, too, which, which situations were really new to Brazil? Like some of that is, is, has been built up along many years that like lack of investments in the health system, on research and so on. And then, and then you, you have this sort of precarious answer um, to an extent. So I think for, for these HEP stories, as you mentioned, for the mayors, I think this means more. It means uh, perhaps a discussion for the future of how we understand um, decentralization of politics in Brazil. But also being more specifically, I think um, the governor of Brasilia could be mentioned. He wasn't very popular just before this crisis, but the fact that he really um, um, put the money on the table, um, for example, to have buses circulating without passengers to not really diminish um, public transportation according to the demand um, is something that people are praising in Brasilia. Also, when he closed all these schools, when there were only five confirmed cases in town. He was very criticized. And later on, um, the numbers showed Brasilia, which promised to be one of the epicenters in Brazil, um, to really control a little bit better the situation. And, uh, and you mentioned other examples. So I think we are going to hear some of these very specific stories as well as discuss a little bit more um, about the, the role of, um, of governors and mayors in these and other situations. The only, um, the, only, the only outbreak in Brazilia he perhaps hasn't been able to control is the one at the centre of power, right? Which seems to, yeah. um, seems to grow. Really interesting. Okay, finally, um, Dr. Benitez, I had the huge privilege recently of sat right where I'm sat now and I got to talk to one of my great Brazilian heroes, the photographer Sebastião Salgado, and we were talking about, um, about his work with indigenous Brazil um, over the last few years in his final great project and we were talking particularly about a letter that he had published um, with with lots of very prominent international um, supporters expressing real concern about um, what he feared would be a genocide of indigenous populations in Brazil because of COVID. Talk to us a little bit about those risks is that something that you're worried about what what can be done what should the world be doing? Um, well, um, that's a good question, and it's always an uh, important question related to Brazil because we are talking here about those communities and those people that historically has been neglected and suffered most among all those uh, who who are in this process, first in colonization and then and as Brazil independent. Um, I think it's important also to remember that there are many issues related here together, not only the indigenous people, but also the indigenous lands and the rights over these indigenous lands, it's important to see 
for instance, the Bolsonaro's speech from the beginning, from the campaign, that he would not demarcate more indigenous land, no single meter more for indigenous people. And there are lots of discussions about uh, the mineral resources that are under these protected areas. There are a lot of illegal mining going on in the Amazonian region also, and especially invade indigenous uh, areas, uh, areas of protection. Um, so when we are talking about that and what is Sebastian Salgado is doing, it's to call the attention that uh, we are talking about first and foremost about people, about indigenous people, originarian people from Brazil, uh, and second, with a lot of economical interest around that region too. So this historical process of occupying the Amazonia to to in the terms that the developmentalists use may, uh, many times in the past, you no, know, to to feed Amazonia, uh, put people where was an empty space as indigenous people were not people already there, living there uh, uh, with the, 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 the nature or in communion with the nature. So what, what we are having here, it's a shock of discourses for many years from the constitution of 1988 of development of indigenous rights, uh, of a new understanding of what are the role and what are the, the space for indigenous communities within Brazilian society in general, from a sort of change of perspective now, giving more support to this model of developmentalism that was there uh, already and for quite a long time. And exactly, for instance, uh, even the, the presence of uh, the, the development of um, uh, uh, hydroelectric dams in the Amazonia, it's something that has been going on altogether. But uh, suddenly uh, we are now seeing or facing that in a, in a more severe way that we have seen um, in recent years. So I think that's the point that we should focus here and what Sebastian Salgado is doing, it's calling our attention for that. The vulnerability of indigenous communities, what's a historical fact in Brazil, uh, it is also something extremely serious today and probably more than ever, exactly also because of the COVID due to the vulnerability of these communities to the virus. And and seems to me, I found myself thinking a lot that maybe Covid couldn't have come at a worse moment for them, at least in Brazil's recent history, because you have, we've seen over the last few years, really dramatic cuts to, to indigenous healthcare and to FMI, right? And, 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 and the video that Professor Anthony mentioned of the, the cabinet meeting last, last Friday showed the, the education minister talking in rather alarming terms about the, the terminology of Exactly. His dislike for the, the term indigenous peoples. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like this, COVID has probably not come at a good time for them. Well, when would be a good time for a COVID crisis? No, I don't think it would be any time a good one for that. Uh, I just think exactly this, this combination of factors that we are having around now, um, they, they make things worse um, in the sense. You no, know? And yeah, it was remarkable the, the comments of the Minister of Education saying that I don't like to talk about, uh, I think, uh, nations or, or people. You know, there is only one people, this is the Brazilian people. You know? So, uh, of course, that reveals a lot, a sort of mentality around uh, how we understand alterity and how we understand uh, this, this sort of respect for, for traditional communities. You know? One question I have, uh, Dr. Vinicius, just, just to finish off on what you were saying, you mentioned Operação Brasil Verde, I think is its name. Um, I've heard a few different sort of lecturas of what it is and whether it's important or not. Some people have said this is just designed to convince the world that everything's okay when really it's not and it's, it's 
it's window dressing. Is that true or, or not? What do you make of it? What should we make of it? So, um, the Operação Verde Brasil, it's, it's interesting to see this continuation from last year. You know? um, when we had the explosion of, uh, especially when the, the world started to talk about the explosion of uh, the, the size of the fires in the Amazonia, the devastation, the deforestation, um, the immediately response came from the Minister of Defense also that deployed armed forces to tackle the fires in the Amazonia. And then we have this, um, uh, the, the nomination of Mourão as the head of the Conselho da Amazonas to, to respond or to prevent the situation this year. So what is important to notice here is um, military, they have uh, a more um, structure, logistic structure in the Amazonian region already. The presence of the military is, is vast in the Amazonian region. In some areas is the only presence of the state, especially close to the borders. Um, they know the region well, they are well trained for the region, both the Navy, the Air Force and the Army, they, they, they can cover the region very well. Um, so it's natural to use them uh, in a sort of uh, guarantee of law and order operation as a subsidiary mission for the armed forces to help in, in, the, in tackling these problems now. So what Mourão declared recently when he deployed the, the troops for, for the Operação Verde Brasil is we want to prevent this year what happened last year. So it was an indirect uh, acceptance that last year it was out of control. And now it's let's try to do something before. Um, both the Minister of Defense and the Armed Force, they are publishing a lot in their web page uh, about the actions and the operations inside this whole mission, uh, uh, discovering uh, illegal mining or illegal um, uh, deforestation and how they are arresting these people, how they are uh, reducing the impact on the environment. So we need to be really pay attention to that now and look very careful what will be the developments, how do, will be the impact on this year numbers of deforestation. If the presence of the army uh, leading this operation will really have an impact on reducing deforestation or not. I think just around August, September, when exactly is the, the period of the year when we have the, the peaks of deforestation, only about that time we will really have a good picture if that was, if uh, had an efficiency or not in reducing the problem. Fingers, fingers crossed. I was in Hondonia covering those fires last year and it was, was shocking, uh, really troubling. Okay, we have a question here from uh, Lone Dieppe. Um, which is, uh, maybe I can put this to uh, Dr. Andres and, and Professor Anthony, um, which is, are there outstanding examples of states and or municipalities where strict COVID measures were adopted to prevent the spread? Uh, Andres, do you want to go ahead? And I, I'll just add a footnote about Sao Paulo. Yeah, I, it's difficult to, to answer good examples um, because... The cities that have very few cases, for example, you don't know whether the youth have had more um, before. So let's talk about some easier comparisons or cities that really manage to diminish the curve. Like I mentioned the example of Brasilia, which I think is a good example because it starts very high up in a number of cases and manage a little bit. But um, there are also two interesting cities that are neighbor to each other that have quite different results, which is Ouro Preto and Mariana in Minas Gerais. So you had in, those cities are very complicated because they are touristic cities, they are university towns, and, and so they were very 
punished by by the pandemic. Um, but then they are slightly smaller cities. They're medium-sized, one um, between 15 and 70,000 inhabitants. And you have in Ouro Preto um, some tests and tracing, and they also build um, an emergency hospital and um, extra beds. And then on the other hand, you had in Mariana um, more cases. So you, when you compare why you had an increasing number of cases in, in one city, in the countryside, but not in the other one, then you really see the, the point in, in large-scale testing, which is what one of the, the mayors was able to do and control a bit more the numbers. And Tony, I think we'll say about some. Yeah, Tom, I just wanted to add, uh, yeah, just about Sao Paulo. I was in Sao Paulo in March. And uh, I was quite impressed with the governor there, Jean, Jean Doria. Um, if you look at the timing, you know, he was announcing quarantine and lockdown uh, far earlier than London. You might think I'm a bit crazy here because, you know, Sao Paulo is an epicenter. But, I mean, Sao Paulo is also very connected, right? It's the biggest airport in the country, lots of international travel. So it's similar in that way to London and New York and those respective countries, UK and US. And they moved quite early. You know, they moved much earlier than the authorities did in the UK. UK, they dithered, supposedly decided on the 14th of March that they should do a lockdown, didn't actually announce it till the 23rd. Well, by that time, Sao Paulo had done it. So I think, um, you know, and I was quite impressed by this, with the seriousness with which most people took the announcement. There was a small protest on Avenida Paulista on the weekend of the 14th, 15th, uh, that violated the rules because the governor said, you know, no gatherings over 500 people. Well, they didn't care. They were going to go up there and protest against the Supreme Court and the Congress in support of the president anyway. But generally, people realized uh, it was very serious and they, and they stayed at home. Just to a, very, a sort of follow-up to, to Dr. Andresa, you, you, um, we're, we seem to be in Brazil moving into a slightly new stage now, I would say. Mm-hmm. Where, so yesterday we saw Juan Doria talking about how they're going to have a... Um, sort of, a, I think he called it a responsible, gradual reopening or something like that, and, with, and towns in the interior of Sao Paulo. Um, and I, in Rio, we seem to be moving in that sort of direction too. How do you feel about the coming um, weeks and months, given that there is, for better or worse, likely to be, uh, in many parts of the country, um, a relaxation? Yeah, this is a difficult one. Um... So we had a lockdown for about, not lockdown, but um, distancing measures, the quarantena for about two months now. And they were relaxing it as the numbers are growing now in Brazil. And the disease is spreading um, to the countryside of Brazil, to the smaller towns. So, and those towns not necessarily have the facilities, the health facilities, access to good hospitals and, and everything. So it's difficult to feel any good about it. So we can only hope that um, some of the lessons were learned about um, the precautions with, I don't know, hand sanitizer, facial masks, which a lot of towns are imposing um, face masks and some sort of distance, um, even when they open, let's say, restaurants, avoiding opening some of the the big um, agglomerations like church or gyms and parks and so on, but they are relaxing more. And I think the new measures will really look at um, face masks, some sort of distance um, for schools and restaurants, if schools are gonna open, 
and um, also um, barriers sanitarias, like avoiding that people travel from one city to the next. So if one city has things more in control, like to try to measure temperatures of newcomers and so on. So let's see how, how that you go. But it, there is, of course, this anxiety that they're relaxing the, some of the policies as the numbers go up. Yeah, there was a very good article in the Polish São Paulo on Sunday by Drauzio Varela, where he said, um, you know, it's made it from Wuhan to, to São Paulo and Rio and Manaus. Of course, it's going to make it to, to Mariana and Malacapuru. It's, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have another question. Uh, Dr. Vinicius, this one is for you, from uh, Eduardo Prado. Can you comment on the military takeover of the Ministry of Health, um, which I, pre I presume is a reference to, I mean, we've, we've lost two health ministers in the last what, 40 days, haven't we? And the interim minister is, uh, is from the military and many of his new staff are. So the question is, is this together with, is this, is this together? It, do you take this together with, the, with the, some of the sort of authoritarian rhetoric we're hearing from people like Gen General Eleno? Does this mean, there's going to be some kind of military takeover or, or the, uh, uh, I think that Bolsonaro will be forced out or removed. Um, and, 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 and a second part of that question, well, there's a, no, from another reader, sorry, from Sierra Deutsch, which is what does the, the, the deploying of the military to the Amazon mean for, that, the, for the situation of the military there in the Nolte? So let's Not just complete the second part of the question because it would be easier to answer. Um, so um, the Amazonian, the, the military are in the Amazonia for quite a long time. It's not a new deployment there. And the, pres the military presence of the Amazonia has been increasing a lot, especially since the, the Lula years. And the well, more military units are being um, um, built in the Amazonia or established there. So there is a huge preoccupation uh, from the Brazilian defense with the Amazonian region. It's one of the main uh, strategic um, treasures of the of the, of Brazil so military presence there a present there and that's why also they are being now called to 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 do these tasks related to deforestation and to and to well take care of the amazon in the side of environmental issues too so it's not that it's increasing or decreasing it's just consolidating what is already a reality there no um well regarding the the, let's say, militarization of the government and which impacts that has in ministries, etc. Uh, military are being quite concerned about the risk of being uh, seen as uh, government and not state. There are a lot of discussions about if the military are really taking a political position here or they are being a state institution. In one side, we have the military as a state institutions. We have the army uh, doing a good job, for instance, tracking the, the COVID as well as the Navy, um, giving good examples, setting good examples, and also helping many regions of Brazil. In the other side, we see this increasing participation of uh, military, especially generals, on the high um, on the, the high top of the of the hierarchy uh, on on political roles, if they want or not, we can say that yes, there is a politicization uh, of the military structure in Brazil. Now again, it's not new, but again, um, there is a big risk on that, and I think military are concerned about this risk. 
is to be associated with the government and uh, lose everything that they have been building up since the end of the, the military regime, since the end of dictatorship up today, this credibility of the population as institutions that you can trust. So that's one risk. But yeah, many people are seeing that. And we could say that if, even if they don't want to talk in these terms, it sounds like we have a military party that support the government. And that's a risk again, you know, because those are institutions of the state that should not be involved in the political decisions made in, in this political level. So the risk is big. Uh, military must be very careful about that for the sake that they can lose the credibility, they can lose the sense of professionality that has been uh, worked and building up for quite uh, a, good, a good period of time now. So, uh, yeah, it is, it is worrying to have so many uh, generals or admirals as ministers or brigadiers as ministers together with then a big staff that they bring together, people that they trust, that they use to work together. So we start to see... Uh, a more um, militarized government than it is um, desirable in democracies. Thank you. Okay, we have another question here. Uh, Dr. Morat, maybe this is one for you. From Natalia Seifert dos Santos. Um, what will the long-term impact on the Brazilian economy due to future waves of the virus be? Can Brazil afford future lockdowns? Uh, can Brazil afford future lockdowns? In terms of the long run uh, impacts, I think it will be a very sharp downturn. Uh, there will be, uh, so talking first about business and industry, and then I'll talk about the ordinary population. In terms of business and industry, it's just going to be a very sharp cutback uh, for a brief amount of time. And then I think things will go back to normal very quickly. For example, the automotive industry, in the past uh, experiences of crises, they lose large numbers of workers. Uh, this is a huge dip in human capital, if you like. But in terms of their productive facilities, there's usually much, uh, not much impact. In fact, right now, the auto industry is not pushing very hard to resume production because they have some four months worth of sales in stock still. Uh, so they have a very different, let's say, uh, concern in terms of the long term. There is a long term concern that is not related to the pandemic, but rather to previous uh, uh, conditions, things like how the rule of law functions, judicial security, what uh, Brazilians refer to. Um, uh, these are bigger concerns, creating uncertainty of, uh, in terms of how the government is going to go forward. Is it going to abandon its, let's say, liberalizing reforms, its regulatory uh, 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 processes uh, to uh, deal with, let's say, the fallout? On the side of the ordinary, let's say, citizen population, I think the economic impacts are going to be much, much harder, much harsher and much longer term. Why? Because once you've lost a job, it is very difficult to be rehired. Uh, secondly, you have had a huge impact on your income and you may have fallen from that notorious middle class back into poverty. The dealing with the continuing impacts of uh, growing inequality, partly because of the nature of this pandemic, 
having different impacts on people, let's say white collar workers who can easily work from home, as opposed to people who deliver services, you know, face to face. So uh, these people are precisely that vulnerable group that in the PT years had sort of migrated to the edge of the middle class, which will now fall back. The disappointment from that, the disillusion from that, that is going to feed much further down the line. Another issue, education, interrupted education. Again here, the private school kids, the well-off uh, people with good digital access, they're just going to move to online teaching. What about those who are going to drop out because they could not have uh, uh, access to education? This is going to have a much longer term impact. And we know in Brazil, businesses are constantly saying we don't have enough qualified people. There is a shortage of you know, highly skilled workers. But we're going to have a whole number taken out of the equation at this crucial time when hopefully some of the positive noises coming in terms of uh, fiscal, improved fiscal management, uh, uh, some reforms, structural reforms that could have you know, given business uh, a, a boost uh, in terms of deciding to invest finally. Last year, for example, Brazil barely grew 1.1%. But the main thing that fell was the investment rate. So when people say Bolsonaro is popular amongst the business community, I don't know. In what way? They're showing no confidence in him. <laughs> and this is before the pandemic. And uh, the sad thing is this move towards, uh, that uh, Tony mentioned earlier, towards the lower income groups supporting Bolsonaro is, well, look at what happened with Lula in 2006. This very simplistic understanding that the person who gives me my handout is the one who I need to support. Although, well, I think I've said enough. It's a complex, ultimately it's a complex answer. And the answer is in what is happening with human capital what is happening with innovation, what is happening with productivity. I can tell you good stories. I mean, there's some fantastic new uh, 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 startups on, for example, the testing front, the Albert Einstein Hospital has a group that has come up with new uh, use of DNA sequencing to test, which means they can run, I think, like 1,500 tests at the same time with, uh, with this. So there's some fantastic skills in Brazil and fantastic medical knowledge. And what a shame that the government is not using it. Okay, I think we've nearly run out of time, but we've got one, one last question, really great question from Beatriz Garabowski, um, which I think is probably for everyone. Um, are there any good things that can come out of this crisis for Brazil? Who's first? Tom, can I just make quick three quick points about that one? We we could talk all day about it, but I just wanted to, it's come out of from what the other panelists have said. I think it I think the crisis has reinforced the federalism, it's reinforced the autonomy of municipalities and states. It's reminded us all of the strength of civil society in Brazil because it's a very well informed public, it's a very engaged public. 
And the last point, uh, not everyone would see this necessarily as positive, but it could be a positive. I think it's forcing people who are in the opposition to the government to think of what alternatives they would actually want to propose. You know, I think the Brazilian political system is not one that gives incentives to the creation of a responsible opposition. The tendency is to do what the Central does. You know, ally yourself with power, get the benefits of power, and forget about, uh, you know, unlike a parliamentary system where there are incentives for a lot of people to create a shadow cabinet, create a shadow government, and propose alternatives, that often doesn't get done in Brazil. And I think what you might see in the coming months is an attempt to build a coalition that's multi-party, that's, you know, cross ideologies, that, that proposes some alternatives for the country, and that, that could be a positive thing. Which leads me to ask a sort of a little follow-up, which is who then is Brazil's Keir Starmer? Well, well I, went, I mentioned someone who could be, I mean, uh, the governor of Sao Paulo. Uh, but there, there are lots of other people, I think, who would, who would like to do that, have that role. And I think Sergio Moro is probably one of them as well. Okay, who else? What, what good can come out of this for Brazil? Dr. Andresa? Yeah, I'd like to mix that one with a previous question from a Brazil member um, asking how big is the role of um, Brazilian research. And um, I think Brazil has built up a legacy on research, especially on Zika, um, before COVID-19. That was very useful. So we see now scientists that have sequenced the genome of, um, the genome of COVID-19 in, in a few hours and they are building up many um, research projects together with universe across the world and COVID-19 is making some of these findings, some of this research, some of the scientists accessible, which wasn't before. There is a lot of public money invested on education behind the paywall. And to see the results of research, to hear seminars like this one, you'd have to go and travel to London. And, and now here we are, we are online and people are seeing us from, from Brazil from different places and and all this money invested on education is is being we are communicating the results of that to people in different languages and in more accessible ways and i don't think there is a coming back there i think now we have proved that we can broad uh, we can live stream seminars and uh, we have also proved that before you submit a paper to a journal that that charts for that paper to be read. You can always submit it to, to an open platform where people can read your findings before it is published. So that what's happening now with COVID-19, people are publishing and developing results so quickly that before it's peer reviewed, it's already out in some other ways. So I, I think this, is, um, this ability to communicate research findings is, is, a, is a good thing coming out of of this pandemic. Uh, Dr. Dr. Marouk? Um, I would like to re reiterate what Andres has said, absolutely, this ability to communicate. And in terms of the economy, which is sort of what I've been asked to focus on, I would say very much it has paused, if you like, many uh, managers, uh, many business executives who are, have been now given a chance to sit back and really rethink the strategies of their companies, to really understand what pressures of deglobalization, 
uh, pressures of uh, 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 reliance, over-reliance, you could argue, on, on uh, commodity. Um, all this, what it is going to mean for the way Brazil develops going forward. Factories, how do you organize factories? What is going to be the role for technology? All these are going to be very interesting things that could be coming online much faster precisely because all executives or most executives and managers have had to sit back and take a moment to think about it. And I think that could be something that could be very usefully taken forward. There will be problems too. I mean, increased automation would be one obvious solution. You know, you don't need to worry about social distancing machine between machines. But uh, the fact is that uh, this will not be the only solution. It will, again, push for more education because you are going to need the, I don't know, the programmers who can write the software for those machines to function. So I think we, we can see the economy going in an interesting new way. Dr. Vinicius, you have the última palavra. Hard, hard, hard work for me, huh? Um, I think uh, just following up what Anthony said about the, the federalism, the reinforcement of federalism, another thing that could come out from this crisis, and that would be really wonderful if we really managed to do this step using this crisis as an opportunity for that, is to understand the balance of powers in, in the Brazilian Republic. So finally, we are having a, a real, let's say, shock among executive uh, judicial uh, uh, power and legislative. If we really start to shake that and understand uh, how important are the balance of powers, probably that will be a great step for Brazilian democracy, a, a democracy that was used to focus a lot and too much in the figure of the president of the republic and neglecting the other powers. So what we are seeing now is that uh, this interaction has been tumultuous, it's been uh, conflictuous, but perhaps uh, this crisis can be a good opportunity to really understand the need for the balance of powers and why they are there and why they need to really not be aligned, but really looking at Brazil in different spectrum. That's what I would like to say. Thank you very much. Great. Well, I mean, nobody asked my opinion, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I think we're in for a really difficult few weeks, unfortunately, in Brazil, and I'm sort of bracing for that. Um, but one thing I found supremely uplifting in the last few weeks of covering this story so intensely is just the sheer range of brilliant, um, intelligent uh, uh, thinkers and doers and who, who love Brazil, who care about Brazil in many different ways and who are engaged with the country at the moment. And I, that, for me, is a massive source of, of optimism. So um, and I, I, this conversation has only reinforced that for me. So thank you to, to all four of you. Thank you to everyone at King's and to everyone who's tuned in in uh, England, Brazil, and wherever else in the world um uh it's it's been fantastic and um you've been listening to the podcast world we got this brought to you by the school of global affairs at king's college london to find out more about the podcast and our work head to our website kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this here you'll find a full list of further reading materials this podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. <laughs>